Open your Bibles this morning to Esther, the Old Testament book of Esther, chapter 3, as we are finishing up our series on the book of Esther. And I'm so excited to dive into what God has for us this morning. Um, But I have to say, I'm so thankful for the worship this morning, uh, that we've been able to already lift up the name of Christ. And, you know, it's amazing. We sang the song that God is a God who does great things. Uh, He is a great God who is in the habit of doing great things. And then we sang a song about the amazing gift of salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there is no greater thing that God has ever done than offering his son for us on the cross. Amen. And so the greatest thing that God has ever done is give us an opportunity to respond to his initiative in our lives to receive salvation. And so we are so thankful for that. I pray that you are thankful for that this morning. Amen. And so I want to encourage you guys this morning. God has uh, given us, again, uh, this time in Esther, and I pray that it would be an encouragement to you. Um, I've got quite a few pages of notes. And so we are, if you remember, we were going to do a four-week series. uh, But because, again, we're going to be blessed with uh, Mike with us next week, sharing his heart with us. And I wanted to make sure we gave him opportunity to do that. Um, We were going to change this up and put it into a three-week sermon series. And so because of that... I hope you're ready. We're going to hang on. We're going to go for a little journey through the rest of the book. Um, There's a few more chapters in Esther than just three. So we're in chapter three. We've got a lot of material to cover, and so we're going to go fairly quickly. Uh, Before we get into the main part of this morning's talk, um, we have discovered through Esther that God's name is not recorded in the book. However, we see his hand moving on every page. We talked about this in our opening week, that the book of Esther is one of two books in the Bible that does not record or give us the name of God. One is the book of Esther, the other is Song of Solomon. And in the book of Esther, many have questioned, why would God put a book in the Bible, his Bible, that does not have his name within its pages? And we discovered that the reason is because God maybe was omitting his name from the book to show us that even when things seem difficult and crazy and unashakably just hopeless, that God is still present even though we don't see him as we think we should. And so when things seem hopeless and things are just shaking us to the core, God is still present. We discovered and said in our first week, the goal of this series was to deepen our trust in God. That by learning this story and hearing this story, our trust in God for our own lives every single day would go deeper. Because sometimes, if we're being honest, there's things in this life that are thrown at us that cause us to question whether or not God is really there. Whether or not God is really even active or doing anything. I mean, is God even aware of what I'm going through? Is God aware of the struggles that are going on in my life? And so far, we've learned that not only is God aware of what you're going through. God knows what you're going through. God is actually working behind the scenes to deal with what you're going through. Now, what's the reality though? God's not always going to do what we think God should do. How dare he, right? How dare God go outside my understanding and actually do something I may not understand? The reality is God can do that because he is God and we are not. And so we can see God move. It's not going to be maybe what we thought. He's not going to solve it the way we thought he would solve it. We might have to go through some growing pains along the way, which are part of the process. But ultimately, we can trust God because if we know Christ is our Savior, that he is working in and through our lives, our circumstances, our situations, not so much to make it the best for us, 
right? That's another thing that we hear today, that God is working so that we'll be happy. God is putting all things so that we're happy in this life. That's not really true. God is working so that his glory will be on display. All things point to the glory of God. Now in that, I will go through seasons of great blessing, but I may also go through seasons of trial and struggle because in those times, God is going to shape and grow me as a follower of Christ into the image of Christ so that he may be glorified. So God is going to work and God is working. We met our main characters last week. And so we're going to just quickly review those couple of characters that we really emphasized last week before getting into the new material. The first character that we met last week was Mordecai. Mordecai was a wise Jewish man who has already once saved the king's life. He's already once saved the king's life. And we emphasize that. We'll get more into his part in the story in just a few minutes. We also were introduced to Esther, the beautiful young woman who gets caught up in a decree of the king, seeking a new queen. And she is actually chosen and becomes the new queen of Persia. And so Esther, a beautiful young woman, a Jewish woman, is caught up in this decree of the king that he is looking for a new queen. Uh, Vashti, his former queen, dared to refuse his request. And so because of that, he issued a decree that all the wives have to do everything their husbands say. Very good, guys. No one said amen. I appreciate that. That's wisdom right there, okay? Even though you wanted to, you held back. Good for you. That's where the Lord constrained me, right? Amen. And so we realized that this decree was issued, but along with that, he needs a new queen. He doesn't like what Vashti did, so he doesn't want her anymore because he's very prideful. We learned this in the first chapter. Esther opens up declaring the greatness of the king. Ajuerus is a powerful king, one of great wealth. And Esther is opening up, the book of Esther is opening up, making sure we know that. And so the queen denies his request. He issues this one decree, and then he issues another decree that he's going to search all the land for a new queen. And so all the young virgins are gathered together in different regions and brought before the king one by one, and then he's going to choose from among them who will be the new queen. Esther is chosen. He falls in love with her, and he chooses her as queen. Now, I said last week, and it was great. I had a couple good comments after the service last week, after the sermon, and I really appreciated that because I love when I hear how God is speaking through the message or through his word, but also maybe different points of view that maybe I hadn't considered. Uh, believe it or not, I don't know everything. I know. Hold on. It's a shocker. I know. But I don't. So anyway, some of the comments that I got last week were really cool. And one that was brought up to me that I thought was interesting is uh, somebody basically said, because I talked about the fact that for young women today, we shouldn't really look at this story as an example we should follow if you're a woman looking for a future husband. You really shouldn't look for a guy that's just lining up a bunch of women and goes, okay, I choose you, and then picks you from among the crowd due to process of elimination. Well, somebody said, well, hold on a minute. Isn't dating basically process of elimination? Isn't when you date someone, isn't that basically you're getting to know someone, you date someone, no, that's not the person for me, and you go through this process, and then finally, by process of elimination, you've chosen this one that you think fits what you're looking for. Now, I understand where that thinking comes from in our culture, and I would argue that, yes, Azuerus actually falls more in line with our cultural understanding of dating, but I think as a believer, as a follower of Christ— our understanding of what dating is for and what should be accomplished through that process is vastly different than what we see in Esther. 
There is a sense of a process of elimination, but let me give you some examples of how a believer, when a young person is considering somebody to marry or someone to date for a future relationship, it's different than just what Azuerus does. Um, again, what was the number one reason that he chose Esther? Because of her looks. It was purely superficial. Now, if we're being honest, looks and attraction play a part in who we date, of course. But that's really, as I think it was Pastor Greg that said this to me this last week, he said, that's like getting your foot in the door. Looks are just getting your foot in the door. It's just starting the process. You're attracted to somebody physically. You find them attractive. Of course, that's going to maybe lead to dating that person in a more serious way. But I want to give you some differences that go beyond what Azuerus does, which is purely superficial, and to what we see as believers maybe a better model to follow, and one that I think most believers do follow this. When you date someone, both of you have the choice to date the other. Esther did not have a choice. You see, Esther didn't choose to, to go on this first date. We'll call it a date. If you study the culture, you understand that our dating and that situation are different, but we're using it just for a comparable. So Esther had no choice. Decree was given. She fit the bill. She was chosen. She went. Esther didn't get to say, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> no, I'm good. Remember, this culture, women are not given that choice. Remember, the, the first decree was what? Wives, you really have no say. Do whatever your husband say. So again, we see culturally, she's just caught up in all this. Hopefully, if you ask someone to go out with you, you understand they can say no. By the way, guys, if a woman says no, you don't date them, okay? It's not like, oh, she's just playing hard to get. No, she really means no. Don't call her anymore. It's weird, okay? Don't be that guy, okay? But there's a mutual agreement to enter into this dating relationship. Another difference would be when a believer dates someone, the looks, again, as we referenced, may be the start or part of the equation, but it cannot be all that the relationship is based on. See, for Azuerus, it was all looks. Who's the prettiest? Who's the best looking? Right? And that's humanly speaking, that's how we gauge someone's importance or value to us. Uh, just a reminder, why was King Saul in the Old Testament, the first king of Israel, they wanted a king so badly because all the other nations have a king. We don't want God to rule over us directly. We want a king. God said, that's a really bad idea. Trust me, you don't want a king. No, we want a king. You don't want a king. No, we want a king. Okay, fine. Choose your king. Notice how God told them and warned them it's a bad idea, but he let them choose their king. So they chose a king. And what, were the, what was the basis of choosing King Saul? Man, he's head and shoulders above everyone else. He's big, tall, strapping, good-looking guy. See, all surface. That's humanly speaking where we go. But when we enter into a dating relationship or you're trying to consider someone for a future marriage, I, I hope and I encourage you that looks cannot be all that you base it on. There's got to be something more. When a believer dates someone, they are looking beyond the surface and will choose the person because of the deeper person within. Now, I said in the first week and even last week that Esther most likely was somebody that wasn't just beautiful on the outside, but had an inward integrity and a care for her people. She was loyal to her people, as we're going to see this morning. But again, there was something more there. But the king didn't consider that necessarily. It was purely looks. Also, a difference that I would point out is a believer should be careful to selectively date others, to date selectively, not just anyone that asks, but date someone that meets what you believe God would have for you. Now, when I was doing youth ministry for a lot of years, I used to 
I said it jokingly, but it wasn't a joke, if you can get that. I always encouraged the students, do not date seriously in high school. Do not date seriously in high school. Have friends, go on dates if parents agree and all of that that takes in consideration. Because you always have students that come to you go, what's wrong? My dad, I'm a 14-year-old girl at this point, my dad won't let me date so-and-so. Okay, well, so-and-so's 17. So-and-so doesn't go to church. So-and-so doesn't have the best reputation. Uh, you better listen to your father, okay? Well, what do you think, Pastor John? Do you think I should be able to date at 15? That is not my choice. What does your parents say? Teens always did this. Do you think I should go to the movies, Pastor John, when I'm 14? Should I be able to see this kind of movie when I'm 14, Pastor John? Eh, nope, wrong question. What do your parents think you should do at 14 and 15 and 16? Well, but I'm 16. I have a driver's license now. I'm an adult. I'm a young adult. Do you live in your parents' house? Do you milk off their food and their money? Do they pay your car insurance? Do they pay your car payment? Do you have a job where you provide for yourself? Well, I live in their home. Yeah, I do all that. Okay, then you are not an adult. You might be older, but you're still living under their house, their rules. You do what they say. I always loved when kids would come to me, they turn 18. And they say, well, I'm 18 now. I'm an adult. I'm an adult. And I always laugh about that a little bit inside. And I would say, you know what an adult is? An adult is someone that has learned to take responsibility for their actions. So you can be 16 and be an adult, or you can be 19 and be a child. So in this understanding, when I say date selectively, we used to tell our students that, just please. I would meet 15-year-old kids that, oh, I love them. I love them. And then they start to do whatever they think they need to do to keep that person loving them. Compromising this standard, compromising that standard. Well, I don't really go to church anymore because my boyfriend or my girlfriend doesn't think I need to go to church, so I don't really go to church anymore. If that starts at 15 and 16 in a dating relationship and then you marry that person, it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. And so to me, if you're a young person here today, and I say young person meaning teen, young adult, 20-something, 30-something, wherever you are in life, as you are considering, okay, is this a person I'm going to marry one day that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with? Do not just go out with anyone, but sit down as a, as a young man or a young woman and say, okay, who would God have me date? Who would God have me marry? And begin thinking through characteristics that you believe. I'm not talking about perfection. There's no such thing. The Hallmark movies got it wrong. That guy, that woman doesn't exist. So stop watching that, get into his word and find out what reality is, Okay. But it's understanding, who does God want me to date? And then begin looking for that person. And if somebody asks you out who's not that kind of person, maybe you go out with them as a friend, but you don't have to go out with them in a serious sense. And so those are just a few examples. And I was so thankful that somebody said this to me because I never considered the comparable between those two things. That is why this example is still not the best example to use if you're looking for a future mate. I'll also say this. One of the other conversations or one of the comments I got last week um, that I thought was interesting and I wanted to point out here. Someone did say, if you remember, Esther spent a year of purification getting ready for that first time meeting the king. And someone, when they were leaving the service, said, you know, it's amazing to me. I thought about this. A year of purification, a year of getting ready for that first date. And there's a good chance she was probably still late. Now, I'm not going to say that I agreed with this person, but they may have been onto something. They may have just been onto something, you know. So, 
But no, it was great last week to get to hear a couple comments back. And uh, Caleb Hill's not here this morning, but when you see him next week, let him know you appreciated his comment about her being late still. Um, I wasn't going to say his name, but since he skipped this morning, he's on the, on the chopping block. I don't think he's here today. No, okay. So, but it's on the recording. It's online. So there you go, Caleb. Love you. All right. So the last character, we really got to move. Uh, we are not, I don't know how we're going to do this. Y'all need to be praying for God to intervene. The last character we spoke about uh, last week was Haman. Haman. Haman was a prideful man that was promoted to a position of honor. A man that Mordecai, we talked about him already, would not bow down to. If you remember, it said that all the other servants, all the other people were bowing down to Haman. Mordecai refused to bow down to him. We don't know why he refused. We don't know why he would not do it. In any case, this lack of honor shown from Mordecai to Haman infuriated Haman and led him to want to destroy all the Jews, which Mordecai was in the empire. It's a little extreme. Man, this Mordecai guy, I don't like him very much. Let's kill his whole people group. Like it's a little extreme, but it shows that in the Persian empire, there were those that had a hatred for the Jewish people that had a hatred for this people group. And this was an opportunity to kind of take revenge or kind of have it out on this people group. So Esther chapter three, we're going to pick up the story right after this decree. Haman goes to the king in a sideways kind of way, wants to talk him into creating this edict to be able to destroy the Jews. And Haman has his own reasons, but he words it in a way that makes the king think something different. And so let's pick up in verse 11. So Esther chapter 3 and verse 11. And the king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to thee. So he's already told him, this is what I want to do. Let's do this. The king says, okay, here's the money. Here's the people. Go do what you think you need to do. Verse 12. Then were the king's scribes called on the 13th day of the first month, and there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants and to the governors that were over every province, and to the rulers of every people of every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language in the name of King Azuerus was it written and sealed with the king's ring. And the letters were sent by post into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews. That's pretty graphic language. It's not just destroy them. It actually specifies to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish. So if there's any confusion on this, this is what's being asked to do. It goes on to say this, both young and old, little, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. You know what this letter is saying? It's open season on anyone who's Jewish. Children, women, Adults, men, doesn't matter. You can kill them, destroy them, cause them to perish. And by the way, you can take all their stuff for yourself. This is the decree that's being issued all because of a man's pride. All because Haman could not handle someone not giving him honor. He says, okay, fine. I'll have it out on the entire people group of the Jews. Haman is getting what he wants. The king agreed to have all the Jews in the empire destroyed. There's a phrase here. If you go on, look at verse 14. The copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people. Remember, even in all the languages of the Persian Empire, because there's many different cultures within it. That they should be ready against the day. The posts went out, being hastened by the king's commandment, and the decree was given in 
Shushan, the palace, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. You know what they're doing? They're celebrating. Oh, man, this is good for us. Remember, Haman's biggest argument for the Jews to be destroyed was that it didn't suit the king. It wasn't profitable to the king for these people to remain. So he played on his pride as well. But then look at this last phrase in verse 15. But the city of Shushan was perplexed. The city of Shushan was perplexed. That phrase I find interesting because they were surprised by this decree. It shocked them. They were confused. They didn't understand, like, why is this happening? Remember, this is out of the blue. There's nothing that sets the stage for this. Many have most likely raised children with Jewish neighbors or even have Jewish friends. And for the sudden decree, it seemed shocking. Interestingly enough, the people weren't perplexed by the decree involving the wives and the husbands that we earlier spoke about. When, when the king said all the wives got to submit to the husbands, do whatever they say, nobody was perplexed. The Bible doesn't record that the people are like, oh, that's kind of weird. What's that about? Maybe because, as we spoke about last week, the culture of the Persian Empire was one that, yes, there was a dominant male influence, which is accepted and even agreed upon in the culture, not saying it's right, but it's what it was. But yet the Persian Empire was also known to let people groups that they would conquer continue to worship and practice their religion as they saw fit. We talked about that, that, that Cyrus was allowing the people to return. I mean, they were even helping Nehemiah rebuild the walls for Jerusalem. They were encouraging the Jews, go ahead, practice your religion. We don't have any problem with that. That was the normal thing in the culture. But now this decree comes out that we're going to kill this entire people group. And the people are like, wait a minute, why are we going after these guys? We've never done this before. So even culturally, this is shocking to them. I'm going to ask that we would pray and ask God to give us wisdom in all these things that we're going to go through this morning. Father, thank you for this morning, Lord. Thank you for your wisdom, your guidance, and your direction. Father, thank you that when we get into your word that we find truth and wisdom that we can apply to our lives. And I do pray, Lord, I know that it was a kind of a side note to the message this morning, but I pray for the young men and young women in here, even those that are older, that are considering someone that they're going to marry one day. I pray, Father, you give them great wisdom. I pray you'd encourage them to use your word, not our culture, as the standard of what to look for. Father, there are some in here that, that did that when they were dating. They had a, a biblical mindset, and they went for that and when they were dating someone. And you brought someone into their lives, Lord, that fit that, that mold, and, and whether it was a young man or a young woman, and you brought them together, and you do doing and, and continue to do great things in their relationship. But Lord, again, maybe there's somebody here that, that is in a different place. Maybe they didn't use that biblical mindset, maybe because they didn't even know you. Maybe they, don't, they didn't know what to look for. And so now they're in a position where maybe they're married to someone that isn't as actively concerned with the things of God. Maybe they're not even a believer. Lord, I pray that you would use them to minister to their spouse, to their loved one. Father, I pray that as our culture continues to go one direction, that you'd help us to know the truth of your word, that your Bible makes it very clear that, that you have an ideal situation for marriage, one man, one woman, for life. Lord, that just screams anti-culture. But I pray that we would live according to your word, not according to the culture of the day, that we may honor you in all things. Father, give us strength to stand for you, as we're going to see these characters did in this study. Lord, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. The, inter- the, the situation here of this decree seems hopeless. What could the Jews possibly do to resist this decree? How could they survive? Every Jewish person in the, in the empire was to be destroyed. I want to dive in and see how God's people respond. But more importantly, I want to see how God responds. And so we're going to fly through a lot of material. Um, if you want a copy of the notes for this study, please see me, let me know, email me, call me, text me. I'd love to give you a copy of all the references so you have all this for your personal study. But let's look at chapter 4 and verse 1. We're just going to read a couple of verses as we look at Mordecai's response. So we want to see how God's people respond to this decree, but also how God responds. And so Mordecai's response. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry and came even before the king's gate for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. So what's going on here? And you're going to see there in verse three, there's even wailing and mourning and all these things that are happening among the people of the Jews. See, Mordecai's response is that he was broken before God. He hears this decree and he's just overwhelmed with brokenness. He humbled himself and he wept before God and the people of the city. Mordecai's actions and response were those of a person showing great grief. We see this in 2 Samuel 1, uh, David's response to Saul's death, or deep repentance, as we see in Jonah 3 and Nehemiah 9. So what's happening here? Mordecai is brokenhearted. He is just, he's overwhelmed with grief and mourning, and he rents his clothes. That means he rips his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ash, basically rags, and he throws dirt and ash on his face. And the reason for that is they're symbolizing being so low to the ground. They're just humbling themselves before God. God, I can do nothing to stop this. You need to intervene here. Now, maybe he was full of grief, and maybe there was some repentance. Isn't it amazing that when God begins to allow things to happen in our lives that we don't understand, it draws us to call out to him, but it also calls us to be aware of where we've walked away from him. And we say, God, I'm so sorry that I walked away from you. Would you please take care of this situation that I might look to you? And it's amazing how we humanly do that. What did people do after 9-11? A whole Congress out on the Capitol stairs singing, God bless America. A Congress that passed laws to hinder what God's word would say is right and wrong and actually going against God's word in many cases. But the minute something tragic happens, human beings have a, an instinct to call to God and say, God, we need you. A lot of that was also driving people into church. Uh, every church in our country was packed full of people after 9-11, crying out to God, God, forgive us for our sin. God, restore our nation. Six months later, those churches were back to normal. Because most people only respond momentarily to a tragedy. And then when it passes and things get better, we forget God and go back to normal. You might say, oh, come on. We saw that on 9-11, but that doesn't happen all the time. Last year, we had so many people that were so angry and mad that you couldn't go to church. That churches all across our country were closing. Christians were freaking out. How dare these pastors close their churches? I had a couple of people reach out to me, not so much in the church at the time, but actually challenge me and say, how dare you close your church for eight weeks? You know, what's funny is so many people were so upset last year when churches closed, and yet now we're all open, ready to go, and people still don't come. But oh man, you better have church, preacher. 
Don't you close the church? We need church. See, it's amazing how when tragedy comes in, we respond in one way, but then once things get back to normal, we kind of coast back into apathy. We're good, God, but thank you for taking care of me. So maybe for Mordecai, there was a little bit of repentance there. God, I'm sorry for drifting away. Some have suggested that Mordecai most likely was supposed to go back to Jerusalem like the other Jews did and not stay in Persia, maybe where it was a little more comfortable. And so maybe he was even repenting of some of that. Again, however he was responding, whether it's in grief, repentance, or both, it shows a consistent desire to honor God and to humble himself before God. Mordecai was also neither afraid nor ashamed to let people know where he stood. Mordecai ended his mournful display and pilgrimage at the king's gates. This was the commercial and legal hub of the city. And as far as he could go to display his opposition to the murderous edict conveyed by the king. So he's out in the street, he's crying, he's weeping, he's mourning, he's letting people know how much he disagrees with this thing. He goes to the king's gate, he's there at the king's gate, and he's weeping, and he's mourning, and he's calling out for God to intervene. He's calling out for people to realize what's happening here. And the Bible is interesting when it says this, that he could go no farther than the king's gate, because if you went before the king in sackcloth and ash, you might sadden him. See, in this culture, the king lived in a fake, but still somewhat real paradise where everything was supposed to be perfect. Don't make me sad. Don't make me, I don't want to know the realities of what's going on out there. I mean, look at this guy. He's so full of pride. His own wife, he got rid of because she disagreed with him. So, so Mordecai's at the gate of the king. He's crying out. And I have to say, I see a great example for us as men to follow in the character of Mordecai, in the person of Mordecai. It is very fitting for this series to fall on Father's Day and for us to get to this point in the series on Father's Day. I almost didn't do this series because I thought, well, Esther's a book, again, about a woman, and why would we do that in a month of Father's Day? But I was reminded again, as only God could do, that Mordecai, you could argue, is more of a dominant character in the book than even Esther herself. How is it that Mordecai is a great example for us as men to follow? Well, I see it this way. Mordecai was a man who was a father figure to Esther, was he not? Her parents have died. They've moved off the scene. Mordecai steps in and takes care of her and raises her and provides for her and nurtures her. It's not because she's his literal daughter, but he's a father figure to her. He takes care of her because it was the right thing to do. As Esther was called into the court of the king, he was there every single day to find out how she was doing. Again, nurture, caring, protection, wanting the best for her. Also, we see that he used wisdom in his decisions when it was with the first situation of the king's life being threatened or even with everything to do with Esther. Even now, we see he's using wisdom to try to make these decisions. He defended the king and honored the king in the decisions that he made. As we too might disagree with our leadership, but we need to be praying for them as godly men. We can disagree with our president, but we need to pray for him because the Bible says to pray for those in leadership over us. And that's what Mordecai did. Do you think Mordecai agreed with Azuerus and everything he did? Of course not. But he realized the right thing to do was to spare his life. And so he did the right thing by his king and honored him. We also see that he humbles himself before God in the face of great danger. Not only does he humble himself before God in the face of great danger, he also makes the decision to ask for help. See, in all these things, I see Mordecai as a great example for us as men to follow as dads and as men. Chapter 4, look at verse 13. 
we see that he doesn't just sit on his hands. He doesn't just ask God to intervene. He asks Esther for help. Chapter 4, verse 13. We read this back in week one, I believe. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape the king's house more than all the Jews. What's he saying? Once they find out you're a Jew, you're going to be killed as well. You're not going to escape just because you're married to the king. So he's letting her know this danger is real for her as much as for the other people. Verse 14, for if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. See, Mordecai went to Esther for help, and he, as we talked about the first week, he realizes she's in a position to help and a position to set the people free. But also he makes her aware, if you choose to remain silent and you choose to not step in and speak to the king on our behalf, just know God will do what God is going to do. Deliverance will arise from somewhere else because God will do what God is going to do. Mordecai understood that if God was God, And if Esther refused, the deliverance would come from somewhere else. But he sought help in wisdom. He didn't just sit on his hands. Again, a great example for us as men. So often it's hard for men to swallow their pride and ask for help. But I'm telling you, wisdom says it is is wise to ask others for help. Because it's humbling to us and it causes us to realize that we need others as others need us. This also means when someone asks you for help, you're willing to go and serve them, even if it's inconvenient. Again, just a quick summary of this, because we did cover it in in the first week of chapter 4 here. Yes, God placed Esther exactly where she is for such a time as this, but Esther has a choice to make. Is she going to choose to be obedient and allow God to use her, or is she going to choose to be disobedient and allow God to just bring about the deliverance from somewhere else? So we see Mordecai's response. Let's look at quickly at Esther's response. We read it. What does Esther do in response to this asking for help from Mordecai? She called for a fast. She called for a fast. And she took part in it. She didn't just say, okay, you guys go do this and I'll just do what I'm going to do. No, no. She said, you do this and I'll do this with you. Interestingly enough, Esther tells Mordecai to fast and call for the Jews as a whole to fast for three days and nights, not to save God's people. She wasn't saying, do this so God will answer us. She said, do this for me. Why? Because I'm going to go into the king. Look at verse uh, 16 again. It says here, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. She realizes that she must do what Mordecai asks and go before the king, which was unlawful to just walk before the king and demand a request. That's not how this culture works. And she could lose her life for this. Again, if if talking to your husband could get you killed, you probably don't want to use this as an example of your future husband. Again, just another example of how this isn't a great example for us to follow. 
Esther is preparing herself to step out and to risk it all for her people. Man, what a great testimony of her love for her people. That she was willing to risk her very life to save her people. She was willing to do whatever it took, even if it meant losing her life. Again, this reveals a loyalty and a care for the Jewish people. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to read a few verses here. And this is the idea of when she actually goes before the king. So she prepares, she prays, there's a fast, and then she goes. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. This is crazy to me. This is your husband. In all this formality, right? This is not, a wedding, to, I mean, a marriage today would not look like this. I mean, I, th- I think about this when I read this. I'm just buying one of those scepters from like a Halloween store and like setting up my chair. And when Sandra comes in, I'll just hold it out. You may enter, okay? She's gonna be like, you're an idiot. Knock it off, okay? I told someone this morning out here in the lobby, I said, you know, when I woke up this morning, Sandra was getting some things out of the closet and I looked around and I said, hey, it's like, where's my breakfast in bed? And she looked at me, she said, you wouldn't eat breakfast in bed. You don't even eat breakfast. And she walked out of the room. Okay, yeah, you're right. That's fine. Okay, good point, good point. We see here this, all this formality of Esther coming in before the king. Look at verse three. Then said the king unto her, what will thou queen, what will thou queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be even given to thee to the half of the kingdom. Love makes you say crazy things. He's like, whatever you want, you can have it up to half of all that I have. Remember chapter one, all of that wealth and power and rule and reign, he's willing to give Esther half of it because he just loves her that much. And Esther Esther answered, if it seemed good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. She created a banquet. She's going to host a banquet for the king and Haman. Then the king said, cause Haman to make haste that he may do as Esther hath said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And the king said unto Esther, at the banquet of wine, what is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom, it shall be performed. He's still saying the same thing. I'm going to do whatever you ask me to do. Then answered Esther and said, my petition and my request is. Now it's interesting the way that stops right there. We think and we expect that Esther is going to say, save my people. This guy's a lunatic and he wants to kill my people. Stop him. But there's a pause here. Verse 8. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king hath said. You see, what happens here is she goes before the king to ask him to spare her people. At least that's what we think. The king is willing and ready to grant whatever she asks, even to the half of his kingdom. She throws a banquet for the king and Haman. She gets ready to ask. She forms the question, my petition is, would you come to a dinner tomorrow that I'm going to throw? Is that really the request that she wants to make? No. 
It's, you need to save my people. Listen, this is what's going on. You don't realize this, but I'm one of them. And if you kill them, you kill me. And if you love me, why would you do that? But she stops and she pauses. Now, some would suggest, oh, she was just afraid. She got, she got, she choked. She just couldn't say it. She couldn't, couldn't put the words out there. I don't know if that's the case or not. You see, I wonder if that pause of Esther's was actually divinely inspired. Maybe God moved for her to wait because all things were not yet ready. You see, God needs Haman to build some gallows. God needs Haman to make some decisions. And these gallows that Haman is going to make, he thinks will be for Mordecai. But God has other plans. In an innocent pause of Esther's moment in life, we see God's response. See, sometimes God's going to move. You're going to think, I need to say this and do that. But then in the moment, God's going to move and say, yes, I want you to say this. It's the right thing, but it's the wrong time. You need to wait. You need to be patient. It's not the time for that yet. I don't know if you've ever had this in your life where you're, you're in a moment and you know you need to say this and it needs to be this way. And you go to open your mouth and nothing comes out. And it's so the spirit of God is saying, no, not yet. I've had moments like that in my life where just in a moment, I remember having these things to say and I knew it was right to say and I knew they needed to hear it. And I went to open my mouth and nothing came out and tears just started falling. Because the spirit of God was like, not yet. It's, they're not ready yet. They're not going to receive it yet. And so we need to be patient and pray for wisdom. Remember, that was the whole point of the fast, was it not? To prepare Esther for this moment. And God is saying, thank you for making yourself ready to receive this because he's not ready to hear it yet. You need to wait till tomorrow. So what is God's response? Now, again, we're going to move quickly. We are already out of time, but we're going to move quickly. Chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to read in chapter 5 that Haman makes these gallows that I referred to, and he's going to use them to hang Mordecai. But look at chapter 6, verse 1. God's response is simply this. On that night, so the day she has the feast, she pauses. Haman goes out, makes some gallows. The king's getting ready to go to bed. On that night, could not the king sleep? And that's God. You say, where's God in the book? He's moving. And he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of these, and it goes on from there, those that were going to slaughter the king and murder the king. Verse 3, and the king said, what honor and what dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, there is nothing done for him. You see, it reads there. That in this book that the king is brought because he can't sleep, that the name of Mordecai, where it was recorded earlier in the book of Esther, is written. And he hears that name and all God's people said amen. See, I told you back a couple weeks ago that when God moves in insignificant ways in our lives, we don't realize the internal impact he's going to make in someone else's life. We make decisions that we think are so insignificant. What's the big deal? And yet God uses that and says, oh, hang on. It's not ready yet, but soon I'm going to do this great thing. And it's going to be because of this small thing that you did, this small act of obedience that seems so simple. But watch me use it to save an entire group of people. You see, because Esther paused and because Haman built some gallows and because the king couldn't sleep, God moved as only God could move. The king happens to read 
the part about Mordecai and how he saved the king's life. See, the king couldn't sleep, so he says, bring me a book that'll put me to sleep. Bring me something boring. Okay, we'll bring this history book over to you. And it just happens. I mean, it's just amazing to me how God works. Just happens to open up to the page that happens to record the story of Mordecai. And it happens to be the night before Esther's going to say, save my people who Mordecai and I am. And that's God. Don't you dare for a second think God has forgotten you, is not moving. He's very active in all that needs to be done for his glory. The king calls for Haman, amazing part of the story. See, the question the king asks is, what honor have we done for, ha- or for Mordecai? Man, this guy saved my life. What did we do for him? Well, we didn't do anything for him. That's a pretty kind of crappy thought. Like, I mean, this guy saved your life, and you don't even know. What did I do for him? Did I do anything for him? No, you didn't do anything, king. Oh, okay, we should do something for this guy. He saved my life. So he calls for Haman. Look at chapter 6 and verse 4. And the king said, who is in the courts? Now Haman was come into the outward of court of the king's house to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai. Why is he coming? Hey, king, we're going to hang Mordecai. We're going to start this thing off with him. To hang Mordecai. Goes on to say this. On the gallows that he had prepared for him, and the king's servant said unto him, Behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. The story goes on to say that the king brings Haman before him and basically says, hey, what do you think we should do for someone that does this? Hey, someone that I take great delight in, someone that I take great joy in, someone that has done a lot for me, what do you think we should do for him? Now, Haman, because he's prideful and arrogant, he thinks the king's talking about who? Himself. He thinks, oh, king, you flatter me. Listen, I think you should honor and do this and that. And look, it goes on to say here, says here in verse 8, Let the royal apparel be brought, which the king used to wear, and the horse that the king rides upon, and the crown royal, which is set upon his head. And let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one king's most noble princes, that they may array the the man with all whom the king delighteth to honor, and bring him on a horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thou, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. King, here's what you do. Get the best clothes, the crown, the horse, everything. Array it beautifully. And then let one of your princes, one of your higher people, go about the city leading this guy around on horseback saying, oh, how great is this man that is being honored? Because he thinks he's talking about himself. (laughs) Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, make haste and take the apparel and the horse as thou hast said and do even so too. Don't tell me God's asleep. Don't tell me God's not working. It says, due to Mordecai, the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate, let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. Then took Haman. He has to now lead around Mordecai. This guy's great. He's awesome. Everybody, look how awesome this guy is. This jerk. Ah, oh, yeah, he's great. He's lovely. I love this guy. The king loves him. That is amazing to me that God flipped this whole thing around. Turn the whole story around. I love this moment. So what does Haman do in response to all of this? Well, he does what most men do when they don't like what's going on and they want to complain to someone. It says in verse 13, And Haman told uh, Zeresh his wife. He went home and complained to his wife. 
You're not going to believe what the king made me do. This Mordecai. But then the story even continues to unfold. So look here at that verse there. You find out here in verse 14 of chapter 6. And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hastened to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther had prepared. Okay, now the stage is set. The gallows are built. Mordecai has now been honored by the king. He's in a position of honor. He's fresh on the king's mind. Haman has now been kind of humbled and humiliated. He has to do all this for Mordecai. Now Esther's banquet has come. And now the king and Haman are going to be brought together. And Esther will now make her request. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen. And we're going to read here. It's similar, similar uh, language. The king's basically saying, I'll do whatever you ask. What is it that you need? It says here, verse 3, Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given at my petition and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. Remember, it's not just killed. It's multiple things here. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I, held, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Then the king, Asuerus, answered and said unto Esther, the queen, Who is he, and where is he, that durst presume this, or his heart to do so? You know what she says? She says, King, our people are going to be destroyed. My people are going to be perishing, wiped out. If we were just slaves, I would have held my tongue. Isn't that interesting? If we just had to serve the Persians, I'd have kept quiet. But I have to speak to save my people. And the king starts to get mad. Why? Because he loves Esther. And he says, who is this that did this thing? I always think of David and Nathaniel. Tells this beautiful story about a man that took this guy's last sheep. And David, enraged, says, who is the man? Nathaniel says, you're the man, David. Here, the king is hearing this, and he's getting angry and angry and wrath. And you're Haman sitting at the table like, oh, man. Oh, no. And then he says, who is he and where is he? Verse 6, and Esther said, the adversary, an enemy, is the wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. Wasn't too afraid of the queen before now. And the king, arising from the banquet of wine and his wrath, went into the palace garden you know what it was? He got so mad he had to leave the room. Come on now. Some of you fellas know what I'm talking about. You ever get so mad you're just like, I'll be back. I just, I got to go for a walk. And he goes out to the garden, probably a quiet place, a peaceful place. He just needs to chill out and cool down. He's so mad. He's so angry right now. He's probably wanting to kill Haman, but he's like, maybe that's not the best thing. What should I do? Well, what happens when he leaves? Haman tries to resolve the situation. Verse 7, it tells us that the king walked out. Then it says this, And Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. He read it in his eyes. I'm dead. This guy's going to kill me. Then the, the, then the king returned out of the palace garden into the palace of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed where Esther was. Not bed like we think of bed, more like a reclining bed, uh, more like, you know, like a couch kind of a bed is what they're referring to here. And so, but she was on this couch and he's fallen on her to beg her to save him. Then said the king, will, the, will he force the queen also before me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. 
You know what he thinks. So now, not only do you want to kill her, now you're trying to take advantage of her. At, at one case, you're trying to kill her now, or you're trying to take advantage of her. Either way, if I wasn't mad before, I'm mad now. And that phrase there, they covered his face. The story goes on to say, as we kind of wrap this up, Haman is hanged on the very gallows that he made for Mordecai. Mordecai, as you read the rest of the book, is honored. He's given all that Haman had. He's honored to a position of great authority in the kingdom. The king calls for Haman to be put to death and Mordecai to be honored and given the power that Haman had received of the king. The Jewish people celebrated this deliverance and honor Mordecai and Esther as great heroes even to today because they stood up in the face of great danger and were used by God to deliver his people. I know it seems like sometimes God's not aware, God's not moving, God's not working. Let me promise you, he is, and we can trust him more today because of it. I'm going to ask that we would bow our heads and have a word of prayer as we go to a time of invitation. As you bow your heads there where you are, I appreciate your attentiveness this morning. I know we're going a little longer this morning, so I appreciate your grace in that. But let's pray and ask God to affirm these things in our hearts and minds. That we would ask God to help us to trust him more. That we would see that when things seem to be hopeless, God is working a plan that we can't even imagine. That those that seem to have power over us, our enemies, our adversaries that are trying to control and manipulate the situations to bring us great harm, God is working to overthrow their plans. But also if we're being fair to the word of God, we know that in this case, God delivered his people. But we know there are times in our Christian lives where God may allow us to suffer. God may not bring deliverance by removing the threat before it even starts. God may bring deliverance through the midst of the struggle. Or God may deliver us through the struggle and bring us home to be with him. Whatever God's will is, we will rejoice and we will trust that it is the greatest plan. It is the best way to bring about his glory. And so I pray that we would resolve today to trust him more. That when God seems hidden and absent, we would know that he is working. And all things work together for good. All things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purposes, that we might be made into the image of Christ. Man, God works in ways we can't imagine. When it seems like it's all turning against us, God in a moment, in a pause, can set the stage and turn it all around for his glory. Father, thank you for your divine intervention in our lives and your sovereign will. Thank you that you've worked and continue to work in so many ways. And no matter what it is, Lord, may we trust you more today than we have before. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet as we're led in a song of invitation? Whatever God is doing, are you in a moment of one of those pauses where you're, you know you need to do this or say this, but God has given you a pause? Would you come and pray for wisdom and guidance? Maybe you know you need to stand and do what God is calling you to do in this world and in this culture and make him known, but you feel weak. Maybe you'd come and pray for strength. Whatever God is doing, would you respond to him as we spend a time in invitation?